Welcome to the Brown County Hour. Coming to you from the legendary hills of Brown. Where the plum purple haze. The one nature herself drapes over the hills and hollers. Inspires local characters, artists, and nature lovers. It's as though the hills themselves conspire to create a beauty and a culture in the heart of Indiana. Sit for a spell and hear the music. The tall tales. True stories. And current goings on. Brought to you by folks who still know how to sit by a fire in winter. And swim buck naked in summer. Welcome to episode 57 of the Brown County Hour. This is Dave Seastrom. And Vera Grubbs, along with the rest of the crew. This month, we'll be sharing our holiday show. Our featured musical guest is Rick Clayton. He's involved in a project called Whole Notes, and we'll listen to a discussion about this event and hear some of the music they make. We'll also have an offering from a group of our regulars, including Carrie Ray, Rick Fettig, Jim Eagleman, Jeff Tryon, and myself, Dave Seastrom. Vera Grubbs has an interview with artist Annabelle Hopkins, and we'll hear about the Winter Bliss event with Lee Edgren and Ingrid Scoot. We'll begin the show with an interview with Rick Clayton about the Whole Notes event. Vera Grubbs shares her interview with artist Annabelle Hopkins. And we'll close by listening to the Whole Notes music as it was recorded live at Harmony Church. This evening we have Rick Clayton in with us, and he's talking about a project that he's involved with called Whole Note. Hi, Rick. Thanks for coming in. So give me some background on this. What is Whole Note? Uh, Whole Notes is a uh, prescriptive music modality that I kind of stumbled across in the late 90s. I worked in a HIV-AIDS hospice for a while, uh, moved to Brown County, and um, big, worked in various churches around here and used harp and guitar for uh, pastoral visits in, in hospitals and nursing homes, and then started working in hospice and kind of revived it all. And I just stumbled on some... Um, techniques and some research that uh, helped me realize that music in particular frequencies can target particular energy centers in the body and give pain relief and uh, anxiety relief and release blocks. You know, when someone goes on hospice, they give up aggressive treatment. Right. And it's all about comfort meds at that point, which usually entails Ativan and morphine and sometimes nausea medicine and things like that people will uh, want to be cognizant for their families and not want to lay there unconscious the whole time if they're able. Uh, and so people will call me to, to come play, for example, it's not all harp, but in this particular case it would be, I'll play the harp for 10 minutes, 15 minutes, just in the key of C. Open strings with no frets seems to be important. And um, they, sometimes, half the time maybe, they can do without medication and they can uh, deal with a little bit of pain so they can stay awake, that's because playing in the key of C, middle C, will uh, release endorphins and painkillers and give people relief. That's where it began with me, and then I began looking at going up the spine, those chakra centers. And so you've developed this program, the Whole Notes, that uh, 
took what the first event took place on the 30th, mm-hmm. uh, right before Halloween, uh, at Harmony Church, which is on Mar- Mount Liberty Road, mm-hmm. which you are the pastor of. Mm-hmm. Um, so describe the event. What what took place that day? Well, we wanted it to be a healing event. Healing's a broad term. I understand that. When I use the word healing, I distinguish it from curing. Uh, those are two different things. Healing has more to do with mind, body, and spirit and bringing balance to them all. Um, we had a lady named Ingrid Skoog who did a, a, a nonviolent communication workshop, and I thought it would be a good idea to have this after that. This, this is a way to communicate with other people. The whole notes experience is about communicating with ourselves. So typically a performance lasts about an hour, mm-hmm. and each of, uh, so you have seven different musicians, is that your goal? Mm-hmm. So each of them starts off and then the rest of you accompany this musician yeah and try to just add to the music as it's happening well it starts with with uh, me playing about a minute on the harp in the key of c and then i hit a tibetan singing bowl and that's tuned to c and then we just start is there an order or a sequence to this the order we've been playing with right now has been uh starting at c uh piano Celtic instruments, dulcimer, psaltery, uh, up to the bass, and then F, we put the percussionist right in the middle at that point because my experience has been in hospice anyway when there's, when there's a lot of blocks, when there's things collecting, it's typically right in the heart area, and there's nothing like a good percussionist to roto-rooter that out, <laughs> for lack of a better word. So what is the percussionist playing? He's he's playing. Uh, oh, he's got three or four different drums that he plays okay. from the, from a deep to a higher tone. Okay. Uh, and this is his doctoral studies, his, his rhythms and ethno music. And then we move to um, G, and then A, and then B. And right now, uh, Janice Jaffe. I don't know if you're familiar with her, but she's this yes. excellent singer who sings Jazz singer, yes. three notes out of her voice at one time. She's handling the crown. The seventh chakra that hovers okay. above the head. You want to think music styles real quick? Sure. Because people might think... Yeah, let's, let's talk yeah. about the styles of music that, that is involved here. Our pianist brings a, a heavy classical influence to it, and he's a, he's a wonderful classical piano player. Um, the bass player and the percussionist are into, really into world music. The bass player is a good funk bass player, but he's also very melodic. Um, Chuck brings a little bit of a blues Americana flavor to it, I've been working, because I typically play just harp and guitar in it, the guitar part has, has kind of been leading into some kind of melodic jazz kind of feel. Uh, Tamra Lane brings the, the Celtic droning sultry and hurdy-gurdy and all that to it, and Janice Jaffe brings her, her uh, amazing vocal skills. So you can't nail this music down to any particular style. Which would be just about ideal, in my opinion. Yeah, it, it works. It does work. I should mention the David Baker yeah. connection at this point. Yeah, uh, David Baker was the legendary jazz professor at IU, and he, he just broke ground everywhere. Uh, legendary. Everyone loves David Baker. And uh, he, he ended up being on hospice, and I was fortunate to be his, his chaplain. Um, and I only got to, to see him just a couple of times. But I've been doing grief counseling with his wife, and they'd been married for 40 years. And she would tell me about his practice schedule, and he would sit down in the basement, his happy place, surrounded by all these thousands of pieces of music that he wrote that are performed all over the world by all these orchestras. But she said he would sit down in his, with his cello in an open sea, 
that's the bass note on a cello, and he would just sit there and bow it for 15, 20, 25 minutes. And when she told me that, I understood how he could really do that kind of thing if he just warmed and juiced himself up like that. So I began, oh, dreaming about the idea of how, how cool would this be if this wasn't just me in a single hospice room or a hospital room or whatever, and what if we just brought one musician for each chakra and just really pounded this home? and really stayed with those frequencies. I asked all the musicians to listen hard to Miles Davis, uh, Kind of Blue, and Coltrane's, um, oh, Love Supreme. Love Supreme. Because th those are two albums that you can really listen to. You can see what it's like to improvise over modes instead of chord changes, number one. Uh, and I don't think there's an album that exists outside of Love Supreme where you can really listen to what somebody's playing from their, from their soul. So we spent time okay. listening to these, these two albums and, and rethinking music. I love entertainment, and I play in a rock and roll band up in Indy, and we have a great time. But uh, music began as a healing modality, almost as a form of communication. And I wanted to explore that, and I wanted to see if it was still viable So today. this is a, a meditative, uh, healing, um, freewheeling, uh, improvisational approach to all of this? Mm -hmm. Everybody brings their talents and their particular gifts to it. It sounds like a spectacular event. Do you guys have a website? Yes, we do. WholeNotesMusic.com So on December 4th at 6 p.m. at the Harmony Church on Mount Liberty Road will be your next opportunity to experience Whole Notes with Rick Clayton and his compadres. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming in, Rick. Really My pleasure. appreciate it. My pleasure. This is Vera Grubbs with the Brown County Hour for WFHB. I'm lucky to be in the studio of Annabelle Hopkins, and we're sitting outside on her porch of the studio. How are you today, Annabelle? I feel great. Good. I, feel good. I checked out your website, and I'm intrigued by your comments on your painting style. Uh huh. Would you elaborate on this idea? Well, I have several styles. I'm kind of spastic that way. I, have, I do a lot of abstract work, which I started doing about 10 years ago. And I do that in acrylic and pastel. And then I do what I call abstracted landscapes, which are kind of impressionist landscapes that are a little more abstract. And then I also do just regular impressionist landscapes. Um, How did you come to this particular style? It's just kind of what I like, you know, every painter paints what they like, follows the type of art that works best for them and gives them the most pleasure. Brown County has a long history of inspiring artists. How has Brown County influenced you and your art? Well, actually, I didn't start painting seriously until I moved to Brown County. I had been living in Monroe County, on the eastern side of Monroe County. Moved there in 1981 from California. And when we bought land in Brown County and then later moved, I said, well, if I'm in Brown County, I have to be an artist. Because <laughs> I've always loved art. So that's when I seriously started studying art. I had retired, and so you know, it was what I wanted to do. Wonderful. And, and I've heard that same story from many artists, that it's being in Brown County that inspires them to become artists. Mm. You are also deeply involved in the art scene in Nashville and all of South Central Indiana. Tell us about some of your favorite social art-inspired projects. Boy, through the Art Alliance, Art Alliance Brown County, 
We've done so many projects. Of which you're president at the moment? I, I'm no longer president as of a couple of months ago. Oh. I, I was president for about <clears throat> 10 years altogether, trying to disentangle myself, uh, <laughs> although I find I'll probably get involved in new projects because I can't seem to keep out of things. <laughs> but first programs was um, Artists at Work, which we did during the bicentennial, when we got artists from all over the state to go out and paint around Nashville in the streets. So we have special signs that said Artists at Work. And that project went on for a year. We had maybe 20 or 30 artists involved that came down here and painted. And then we started the Artful Dining Galas that same year. It started as a centennial project. And we ended up doing three of them. And they were very successful in raising money that we gave out to all types of art organizations throughout the county. We've had a number of shows and exhibitions. We also started the Art Walk five or six years ago. It's still going on. Last year we started a new project called Partake, which consists of workshops, small two-hour classes held at Chateau Thomas Winery on Saturdays from March through November, usually once a month. And we have a different artist teaching each class. And the people go in, they pay, they get everything included, all the materials, the instruction, wine and snacks and uh, they have a nice piece of art to take home with them. And a lot of people are beginners who have never painted before, and it's amazing what they come up with. Information on our website, artalliancebrowncounty.org. What is your vision for the future of the arts in Brown County? It's always changing. I'm, I'm now a member of the Arts and Entertainment Commission and a bunch of very bright individuals. We're trying to find ways to promote art in Brown County to make art profitable for the artists and the businesses and to draw tourists to Brown County to draw art lovers to Brown County. They have a number of public art projects where the Arts Commission is still trying to promote public art and they now have a concert series in the summer at the gazebo, which is a lot of fun. Yes. We're, we have a three-year plan and we just keep working on the plan. It's amazing how all the groups work together here in Brown County. There are so many people from other communities say that they have trouble getting folks to cooperate with each other. And here I find that our art groups and galleries are all more than willing to work together and help each other out and promote art. Because when we get people here to buy art, it helps all of us. And we aren't really, I mean, we're in competition, but you never know where someone's going to end up buying something. Sure. Given that you are an art activist, how important is the health of the environment and what are you doing to preserve and or enhance that health? Every artist I know in Brown County loves nature. I mean, that's why they're here. They, they, I've never met anyone that just doesn't love it here. I mean, it's just a, they'll do anything they can to preserve it and, and keep it nice and make it available for people to come see. I really thank you for allowing me to come and talk to you today. Well, I love your program and wish you the best of success. Oh, thank you. This has been Vera Grubbs talking to Annabelle Hopkins.
Thank you.
Now we pause for station identification. Support for WFHB in the Brown County Hour is brought to you by Plum Creek Antiques, located at the intersection of 135 and 45 in downtown Bean Blossom, where visitors can buy, sell, or trade most anything. More information is available by calling 812-988-6268. You are listening to the Brown County Hour on volunteer-powered community radio WFHB at 100.7 in Brown County, 91.3 and 98.1 in Bloomington, 106.3 in Ellettsville, and online at WFHB.org. In this segment, we'll begin with a Christmas tune from Chuck and Carrie. Jim Eagleman brings us an essay about Christmas trees. And we'll listen as Lee Edgren and Ingrid Skoog discuss the Winter Bliss event. Post-Thanksgiving days now upon us, I'm reminded to put up the Christmas decorations by commercials, magazines, Facebook, and family. I like all activities associated with the winter holidays, making presents, parties, family closeness, but I have to admit it's the tree itself that I look forward to the most. Plus, I'm such a nostalgic sap that it brings back some good memories. I'd venture to guess you have some good memories, too, centered around this green icon symbol. Well, usually green, but sometimes other colors, too. What are those memories? Christmas trees, like the Thanksgiving turkey, Halloween pumpkin, and other sustainable crops, are big business. Commercial growers are already thinking of marketing for next year. Harvesting trees from fields began in many parts of the country several weeks ago. You can see the trees wrapped and stacked on the flatbed semis, heading to distant towns on any interstate. Christmas tree farms 
U-Cut Nurseries, and even the grocery store lot are destinations for families and dogs, all enjoying selecting, smelling, and carefully loading their purchase. 98% of all Christmas trees are grown on farms, while only 2% are cut from the wild. To ensure enough trees are ready to harvest, growers plant one to three seedlings for every tree harvested. In 2015, more than 47 million tree seedlings were planted by U.S. growers, with about 12,000 trees planted per acre. It takes six to 10 years of unpredictable weather to get a mature tree about six to seven feet in height. Shearing and pruning a sticky, sweaty summer job ensures the perfect shape we want in our trees. Wild independent branches, dead needles, broken leaders, and boughs are not tolerated. I recall following behind my dad years ago as he walked along a steep, eroded, but sunny hillside on our Pennsylvania farm. It was the job for my sister and me that spring to stomp our feet around the newly planted evergreen seedlings that he had just purchased from the extension people. About every 10 feet, he reached into his burlap sack for a new tree, a spindly pine seedling, a whip, he called it. And he pushed a red planting bar into the ground that looked like a short, skinny shovel and stuck in the young tree. We came along behind and did a little dance around each tree. All that year, I watched to see if there was any change in our plantations, as he called it. Weeks later, a few deer scrambled away when we drove nearby, and he said we might not get many to survive. I nearly forgot about the trees for a few years until one Christmas vacation, he said we could get one of the trees to cut. Most of the white pines by then had grown to a somewhat respectable height of six feet, a few had been topped by deer, and some buck rubs appeared on trunks, but we found a few that even allowed us a choice. It looked stately and wide as it occupied a corner of our living room and smelled great. Although I didn't know it then, it began for me a lifetime of admiring Christmas trees. Last year, a friend in our yoga class said I could have all the cedar trees I wanted on his property. He planned to clear a small pasture where they had grown close together, many of them 15 to 20 feet in height. Make sure you wear work gloves, he said. The prickly branches, some with little blueberries on them, scratched my bare arm as I loaded a few into the back of the truck last December. A fenced pole digger allowed me to stick a few in the ground and run a string of lights to them. He wants me back again this year, so I now have a new plan for more trees. We have our own pine plantation in our woods now, and what I estimate to be about a half mile of extension cords, the little white lights are fun to look at through the woods each evening. What memory of the Christmas tree do you have? Finding a bird's nest in your newly installed tree is supposed to bring good luck. Swedish friends of ours still decorate with tiny candles they light at Christmas Eve, a fire extinguisher on standby. One family decorates a small tree for each member of their family and puts it in the bedrooms. Everyone has a special ornament since childhood, but for me, the less ornaments, the better. Well, maybe some straw animals, a few paper stars that Kay made, some red balls, and of course the angel on top, but that's it. Oh, wait, we always have those silver bells and those hand-carved wooden elves. Oh, yeah, and the ones the boys made when they were in elementary school. An old remnant of last year's tree is still visible in a brush pile by the compost bin. Chickadees and nuthatches climb in and around it, the nearly needless branches still providing protective cover. Maybe this is where yours can end up after the holidays. Have a great holiday, everyone. This is Jim Eagleman with another segment of Nature News. Joining all the other fine folks here at WFHB Radio, the Brown County Hour, and wishing everyone a Merry Christmas. 
So hi there, this is Carrie Ray with the Brown County Hour, and I'm sitting here with Lee Edgren and Ingrid Skoog, two ladies who have some really exciting information for us about a retreat that's coming up January 13th through the 15th, which is Martin Luther King Jr. weekend. To give uh, just a little background, this will be the sixth annual retreat. Um, for the first five years, this event was called the Warm Up From Within, and this year, the event takes on uh, new leadership as well as a new name, uh, which is the Winter Bliss Wellness Retreat. Same weekend, uh, same event with a new name and a new face. So I want to take a moment and hear a little bit from Lee about her original vision for the event and what has brought us to this year. It really was serendipitous. I started in 2011. I wanted to offer a weekend that was filled with a variety of workshops that created both physical and psychological space. Everybody's exhausted from the holidays, and now it's time to pause and take stock and feel what's really important. I wanted something that would take us in rather than out. The first year, we had uh, Michelle Bland Pollock's fabulous art project as a kind of centerpiece that was called What It Means to Be Human. And I see that as kind of what this is all about, or what it was all about, exploring that question through music and poetry and movement and art. So with nobody shouting, more, better, faster, harder, <laughs> you know, comfortable self-trust is, is really um, immensely hard in this culture. Mm -hmm. And we're so conditioned to thinking we should be doing something other than what we're deeply led to do. And so we short-circuit that process, and this is a way to get back in touch. Mm -hmm. And um, I came to a point where I had other projects that I wanted to do, and Ingrid stepped forward, and now she's giving this retreat her special selections of people. She's done a lot to keep continuity and honor of what I brought into being, and I'm so grateful that it's still going on because I get emails every day about it. It went yeah. from 25 attendees to uh, capacity. Oh, that's great. That's great. So Ingrid, uh, who will be at the helm starting this year, moving forward, uh, tell us a little bit about what made you want to get involved, what sort of inspired you to take over the helm here, and what are your thoughts about what folks can expect that have been traditional parts of this retreat and maybe some uh, fresh perspective and, and new directions as well? Wonderful. I remember first hearing about this event several years ago and being ecstatic that an offering like this would be available essentially in our backyard. People will often go to the coast and spend lots of money to get an experience like this, and yet this is such a magical event that takes place in the woods, in the heart of winter, and for me it's about renewal. I attended last year and felt transformed and, and so inspired and nourished and went away expecting to attend again this year. And Lee invited me to be a presenter. And then when she realized she wanted to step back from coordinating, I decided to step forward because it's such a wonderful experience. I really wanted it to continue. That's great. It looks like um, I'm looking at the flyer here uh, that talks a little bit about the workshops that are going to be. It looks like we have some yoga, 
watercolor, something regarding play. There's a music component. It's a it's a really sort of holistic kind of interdisciplinary uh, exploration, it seems. Exactly. One of our taglines is renew body, mind, and spirit. I like to think of this event as kind of a celebration of the senses. So we give people an opportunity to move their bodies, to use their creativity through art, uh, to quiet their minds through yoga and mindfulness training, to connect with their feelings and needs through the Embracing Your Beautiful Needs program that I myself am leading. Mm -hmm. And then we have wonderful sound healing opportunities The first of these is happening on Saturday night, and it's featuring the Whole Notes group that has been mentioned at another point in the program. And that Saturday evening component starts at 7 p.m., and it's free and open to the public. Free and open to the public. So the the rest of the event is something that you register for and, and buy a ticket to attend. That's right. But that component is open to everyone. Anyone who wants to participate, yes. Great. Well, I want to be sure folks know where they can get more information because I know I, for one, want more information. So with your permission, I'm going to keep a couple of these flyers. Uh, But in the meantime, uh, I want to let folks know that they can visit winterbliss.org. Or if they're on Facebook, they can go directly to the Facebook page, which is called the Winter Bliss Wellness Retreat. You should be able to search that and uh, bring it up. You get tons of information about the components, the workshops, where and when, and how to get yourself there. And as you've said in recent history here, um, this event has gone to capacity. So folks should probably consider doing so sooner than later. Yes, that would be a good idea. Is there anything else I've forgotten that you want to be sure uh, that folks know before we sign off? Well, I just wanted to say that Ingrid has done something that I very much wanted to do, which was keep the idea of local sourcing. Mm -hmm. We have fabulous teachers and instructors in this area. And then the other part of this is she's kept the pricing low. I wanted when I started to uh, offer something that people that lived in Brown County could afford. So it's actually priced well below the usual market price that's asked for this. It's really an amazing opportunity, and she's done a great job of drawing it together. Great. Well, I'll let people know. uh, Also, there's an important date here besides the dates of the event, uh, which again are January 13th through the 15th, 2017. Uh, But there is an early discount ticket that you can take advantage of as long as you take advantage of it before Christmas. So ladies, again, Lee Edgren and Ingrid Skoog, thank you for being here with us and for telling us a little more about the Winter Bliss Wellness Retreat. Now we pause for station identification. Support for WFHB in the Brown County Hour is brought to you by Plum Creek Antiques, located at the intersection of 135 and 45 in downtown Bean Blossom, where visitors can buy, sell, or trade most anything. More information is available by calling 812-988-6268. You are listening to the Brown County Hour on volunteer-powered community radio WFHB at 100.7 in Brown County, 91.3 and 98.1 in Bloomington, 106.3 in Ellettsville, and online at 
wfhb.org. final segment begins with Jeff Tryon talking about country stores. Rick Fettig shares a Christmas song. Dave Seastrom's essay this month is about our forests. And we'll close with a Christmas carol from me, Chuck Wills, and our very own Carrie Ray. My Brown County with Jeff Tryon. The more I thought about what really makes Brown County Brown County, the more I began to realize how we each have our own particular Brown County. In a way, Brown County is what we each bring to it, what we find there for our own, what we each make of it. No one else sees it probably in the same exact way that I do. That's what makes it my Brown County. country stores. I grew up near Fruitdale, up in the northern end of Brown County, and when I was a little boy, there was a little country store there called Flanagan's Market, and it looms large in my childhood memories because penny candy could be had there, and soda pop, and many other highly desired delights not common to my everyday experience. I especially remember that on Halloween, while out trick-or-treating, we would stop by the store and old Mr. Flanagan would hand out free candy right off the candy shelf, conveniently located at child eye level in front of the main counter checkout. It was a regular little country store with two gas pumps out front, a little bit of everything on the shelves, and a little bell on the door that went ding-a-ling whenever anyone came in or went. The cash register was manually operated. A drive through Fruitdale today reveals that not only is the old Flanagan's Market building an empty hulk, the newfangled gas station just down the way that took its place for many years in Fruitdale Affairs has also gone belly up. Farther north, another old gas station has long since gone away, but still bears the unmistakable architectural form of a 50s gas station building. Kind of looks like Fruitdale is drying up, a mere shadow of its former self. The store, the gas station, had been a hub of community activity and information, such as it was in Fruitdale, and without any functioning marketplace, the place itself is diminished. And it isn't just Fruitdale. Little country stores are disappearing from the landscape of my childhood all over Brown County. In fact, I can only think of a couple that are still in business. When I was about in the sixth grade, we moved from Fruitdale to Spearsville, farther east in that northern tier of the county, and the local country store was Burker's Grocery, right in downtown Spearsville, a venerable institution now defunct. Burkers not only loomed large in my childhood, but was also a central place in my father's childhood because he grew up around Spearsville and Pioga. As I say, Burkers was often the locale or a feature of my father's childhood tales of fun, fighting, and whatever else they got up to back in the 20s and 30s in Brown County. At some point in its history, it was Walker's Grocery and is so depicted in a Frank Hohenberger photo of 1927, which includes a young Homer Oliver. Hohenberger also documented the store and gas station at nearby Fox's Corner in an iconic photograph featuring a Model T at an ancient gas pump. 
The great Brown County photographer also preserved a glimpse of the Belmont Post Office, located in the store and station that was there right up through the 80s, now a used car lot. Fox's Corner is gone, and so is Burker's. Both faded away into memory. And that's the way it went with most of the little country stores that once dotted Brown County. There used to be a little store and station across from the Westgate entrance to the state park, and another little station down where the Redbud Motel is currently located. A couple of years ago, Crouch's Market closed, the epitome of a community revolving around a little country store that had seemingly always been there and seemed like it always would. Down the road at Story, a high-end tourist destination restaurant and bar has taken hold where a hundred years ago, a community revolved around a little country store and a gas station run by Alra Wheeler that sold everything from a cake of chewing gum to a threshing machine. Knight's Corner closed. The Bean Blossom IGA closed. The very idea seemed stunning to me. It was clear that things are not going to continue to be the way that they have always been. There are some signs of hope. I saw where someone bought the Helmsburg store with the express intention of keeping it open, a noble ambition. I went by the Needmore grocery the other day while out cruising the autumn back roads and bought a soft drink. Still hanging in there. The Gatesville General Store is still going strong. The store in Piogi, Brock's General Store, is still open as far as I know. It changed hands in 2014 when Mary Brock ended a 37-year career there. The store was sold to the Eisenminger brothers, Jeff and Eric, who also operate small markets in Greenwood and Trafalgar. As far as I know, it's still open. I guess I haven't actually been up to Piogi in a while, and times are uncertain. These old country stores were more than just a place where merchandise was sold. They were a kind of community clearinghouse for vital information about friends and neighbors, births, deaths, and marriages, affairs of state, news of interest, foreign and domestic, local and far-flung, were threshed out around an old pot-bellied stove while folks, mostly the men, perched on benches, boxes, nail kegs, and sometimes even chairs. Politics and religion were examined in some detail. Everything of importance that happened in Brown County either happened at one of the stores or was soon reported there, according to early history buff Grover G. Brown. Quote, if a man got shot, he somehow arranged it so the shooting happened at the store, he wrote in a 1960 article. If a man wanted to give his enemy a good flailing, he usually found him on the front porch of the store. If a man wished to cuss the government or complain at the Lord for the bad weather, there was no place like the local country store. The methods of selling were crude and slow. Sugar came in barrels weighing 300 pounds. It might become so hard that the merchant had to use a hatchet to cut it out before weighing it out as called for. Salt came in barrels weighing 280 pounds. It too could be baked hard in the barrel. Coffee, green or roasted, came in 300-pound bags. The merchant weighed it up a pound at a time as needed. It was usually roasted in the oven at home and ground in a small coffee meal that was held between the knees, a regular morning chore. The old country store bought chickens, turkeys, geese, ducks, guineas, eggs, butter, even stale and runny. Also sometimes wool, ginseng, yellow root, and mayapple root, Brown reported. My great-grandmother trapped quail and sold them. There was no law against it, and there was no game warden lurking around in the shadows all the time. Oh, for the days of old, without all these infernal conservation officers lurking around in the weeds, spying on people. It's unseemly and un-American. Of course, the old country store survives in a weird Disney-esque way in the country store located in the Nashville House restaurant in downtown Nashville. In his excellent paper, A Picture of an Old Country Store, The Construction of Folklore in Everyday Life, Brown County folklorist John Kay shows how the old country store in the Nashville House is a constructed, created history, 
quote, an interpretation of what tourists thought Brown County architecture should be. Since the new structure had no physical connection with the past, Jack Rogers decorated the store to revitalize the nostalgic conceptions of the earlier business, Kay wrote. One journalist described the old country store as a replica of the old-time stores where our granddads traded, hanging lamps, old-time scales with scoops, spice boxes, string holders, the loafer's delight, a pot-bellied stove with a checkered board handy. Brown reports that along with a big hand-wheel crank coffee grinder, a country store was likely to contain an old-time tobacco cutter, cheese cutter, wooden paddles for stirring apple butter or soap making, containers from which gunpowder was sold, broad axe and red cedar churns. So this idea of a little store where the community crosses paths and shares information and cross-pollinates was a thing of the past, even in our past. A nostalgic vision of the way things used to be rather than a viable economic model. We want to have a little store down the road where we can pick up some milk or put up for sale or help one and notice on the bulletin board but that is no longer the world that we live in. In my Brown County, the little country stores are seemingly drying up and blowing away, and I suppose the communities that use to revolve around them are doing pretty much the same. in prison and the food was real good we had turkey pistols carved out of wood i dream of her always even when i don't dream her name's on my tongue and her blood's in my stream wait a while eternity oh my nature's got nothing on me Come to me, run to me, come to me now We're rolling, my sweetheart, we're flowing by God She reminds me of a chess game with someone I admire Or picnic rain after prairie fire Her heart is as big as this old dog on jail And she's sweeter than saccharin at a drugstore sale Wait a while, eternity Oh, my nature's got nothing on me Come to me, run to me, come to me now We're rolling, my sweetheart, we're flowing by God Well, the spotlight in the big yard swings around with the gun And spotlights a snowflake like dust in the sun it's Christmas in prison, there'll be music tonight I'll probably get homesick, God love you, good night Brown County is the most forested county in the state of Indiana because our real estate is comprised of scraps of land from other counties that no one wanted. The rough terrain and the rugged hills made it difficult to build and maintain roads and run electric power to this area. So even now, we're not exactly in the mainstream. Our gift to Indiana is a forest that's in 100 years of recovery. If, by some miracle, we can save a portion of this woodland, 400 years from now, we will have the beginnings of a healthy, undisturbed forest. 
I've been reading the international bestseller, The Hidden Lives of Trees by Peter Woolbin, and I highly recommend it. Mr. Woolbin is a professional forester who manages a forest in the Eiffel Mountains in Germany. He's a degreed scientist who, through years of observation, has come to understand the deeper relationship between trees and the interconnectedness of all the lives that depend on an intact, undisturbed forest. The beauty of this story lies in his ability to see how every life in the forest is dependent on the other. And without all of these lives remaining in place, the future of the forest is in jeopardy. As humans, we think in terms of our own short lifespan. But forests operate on a far longer time scale. One of the issues we face with current forest management is that the programs are designed in human time and not in tree time. A white oak tree can live to be 500 years old. Yet the humans who make the management decisions for that tree become old and feeble before this tree is in early adolescence. Because trees seem so different from us, we tend to view them as a completely foreign life form. We don't see their family relationships or how they protect and nurture their young. They seem distant and unanimated, when in fact they live dynamic lives and form relationships that assist in their mutual survival. The plants and animals that inhabit a forest thrive when the system is in balance and suffer when it isn't. Those in charge of our current forest management view our forests as cornfields, and the intent is to maximize the timber harvest simply to collect as many dollars as possible. We are seeing a rise in disease and insect invasion, which is taking a large toll on the tree species that are affected. We can also see the beginning consequences of climate change in our forest. Combined with the stress of increasing rate of logging by 400%, this combination spells disaster for the future of our forests. Mr. Woolben's research points out that when a forest is complete, the trees help defend each other from disease and insect infestation. When the trees are raised in isolation, like in a park in a city, they don't live as long, and they aren't as healthy as their kinfolks who enjoy undisturbed lives in an intact forest. My wife and I live directly adjacent to Yellowwood State Forest, and over the years I've seen lots of logging. Up until 12 years ago, a given tract of state land was harvested once in 20 years. During that harvest, 17% of the new growth was taken. The hiking trails were respected, and this low rate of harvest created little, if any, damage to the other trees. We also protected about 30% of our forest that was set aside for preservation. Now, we protect nothing and a given track might be cut two or three times in 20 years. In combination with this 400% rate of increase in timber harvest, we're setting the forest up for disaster. In the new plan, the focus is on creating an oak hickory forest. This comes at the expense of all of the other tree species. When they log a track, the forest is bulldozed, and the so-called undesirable trees are shoved to the side and left to rot. The equipment that's used to cut and skid the trees arrives in a new track covered with mud from the previous track. This is how invasive plants are spread. This is also against the best management practices as set out in the guidelines, but this is never enforced. What we have, in my opinion, is far more precious than money. There is plenty of money in this world, but there are very few forests, and no amount of money can replace an old growth forest once it's gone. Only time can do that. Our spectacular forests can be a gift to the future of humanity, and what we have to do is leave them alone. 
If we want our children's children to enjoy what we have, and if we dream that their descendants will be able to enjoy the same, the time to do something is now. If the new strategic plan is allowed to run its course unaltered, in the next 10 years or so, every state forest in Indiana will be denuded simply for the money. If this concerns you, please go to our website at browncountyhour.com and check out the links to our Woodwatch page and see what you can do. I would like to leave you with a few quotes that inspire me in these dark times. It's horrifying that we have to fight our government to save the environment. Ansel Adams. A true conservationist is a man who knows that the world is not given by his fathers, but borrowed from his children. John James Audubon. Here is your country. Cherish these natural wonders. Cherish the natural resources. Cherish the history and romance as a sacred heritage for your children and your children's children. Do not let selfish men or greedy interests skin your country of its beauty, its riches, or its romance. Theodore Roosevelt. This is Dave Seastrom, giving you something to think about. See you next time. Thanks for tuning in to episode 57 of the Brown County Hour, recorded in our studio at the History Center here in downtown Nashville and brought to you the first Sunday of every month at 9 a.m. and the following Wednesday at 6 p.m. The Brown County Hour is brought to you by a diverse group of folks who believe the world is for everyone. This show was produced by Pam Rader. Rick Fettig, Vera Grubbs, Carrie Ray, and Dave Seastrip. 
We would also like to thank Slats Klug for our theme music. You've been listening to the Brown County Hour. Coming to you from deep in the woods of Brown County, Indiana. Celebrating the arts, culture, and nature that make this such a unique community. Visit us online at browncountyhour.com. The Brown County Hour is a production of WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported community radio for South Central Indiana. Take me back, back to my home, Brown County. Oh.